This is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. Good morning, Bitcoiners. It's 1041 a.m. Central Daylight Time on the 7th of August, 2020. This is episode 266 of Bitcoin. And can you feel it out there? Can you feel that battle brewing? Ether. Bitcoin in the cage match over the fact that Ethereans cannot figure out how many Ethereum there actually is in existence. Yeah, this shit's been raging on since last night and it really heated up today, dude. We got like Who's our contenders here? We got Pierre Rochard. We got Eric Wall. We got who else is in this damn thing, man? There's all, oh, uh, UA comment is, is weighing in on the fact that you can't figure out how much ETH is in existence. All the Ethereans seem to be telling us that of course it can be done, but not a single one has actually showed us how they did it or the results of it or freaking anything for that matter. So it's going to be a fun weekend, isn't it? Going to be fun. And uh, let's see, what do we got here? What do we got on deck? Uh, let's just get, yeah, let's get right on into a little bit of community news here. Uh, the first thing that I want to put out there is that we we have a new potential meme that we could, uh, if we so chose, we could meme it into existence. Uh, Raul Pal said sometime yesterday, he, he has this tweet, it says, my conviction levels in Bitcoin rise every day. I'm already irresponsibly long. I am now thinking it may not be even worth owning any other asset as a long-term asset allocation, but that's a story for another day. I'm still thinking through this. So where's the, uh, where's the memeage? Irresponsibly long. The minute, I mean the very second that that processed through my head, all I could think of was Elizabeth Stark saying reckless. So if you're going to go, if you're going to go, then go irresponsibly long. I am irresponsibly long. I love it. So meme that son of a bitch out. Next up, we have citadel21.com. That is going to be at CTDL21 on Twitter. Has this one out. They did this uh, four hours ago. It says, Citadel 21 Physical Zine Project is 100% Bitcoin. We pay our printing partner with Bitcoin. We pay our drop shipping partner with Bitcoin. We pay our designer with Bitcoin. We will only accept Bitcoin as payment for the zines. Our very own Bitcoin circular economy. All right, think about that. Think, think about that. So go support uh, CTDL21 if you don't have the Satoshis to spare to buy the magazine. At least go follow them, uh, retweet their stuff out. You know, give them a give them a leg up, man. We're all in this shit together. Speaking of together, Jack Mallers has it together, dude. Uh, 
and what I like about this uh, little tweet storm here, and it's small, is that he gives us kind of an insight into some of the problems of LN strike. Let's figure out what that means. He says, and again, this was August the 6th at uh, 11 o'clock a.m., Running a massive set of lightning nodes for LN strike has been fun and really interesting. With strike rapidly growing, we are seeing spikes of payment failure rates for the first time. Investigating led us to some interesting insights. Leaving our nodes open to any incoming connection allowed anyone to open channels to us. Almost all of these channels were bad channels and resulted in difficulties for our nodes. Our nodes were struggling and encountering memory spikes correlated to payment failures. It's failing, but let's continue. So first things first, we deployed at Lightning's channel acceptors feature, allowing us to only accept incoming channels from peers we are interested in. Secondly, we tweaked our payment probe logic to be more in line with MPP, multipath payments, which can return multiple HTLC attempts. We added a few more things and tweaked some other things. Since Mr. Felton, or at M-R-F-E-L-T-O-N, deployed these changes, we haven't had a failed payment since. Lightning haters may not like it, but we're settling thousands of payments every day instantly and for a few Satoshis with no problems. And the very last one in this is this. Strike may give Lightning Network its first real throughput test. These are all new challenges. But the only way to learn is to try. As we grow, Lightning will grow with us. I'm excited to share our learning slash expertise and get bigger businesses and exchanges on board. It's happening dot gif. <laughs> okay, so a couple of things to say about that. Mm, I'm like, okay, my criticism. Uh, channel acceptors at Lightning's. That's the at Lightning is the Twitter handle that he's talking about. Channel acceptors allows us to only accept incoming channels from peers we are interested in. Slightly problematic. Why? Because we bitch all the time about centralization. And this is going to cause a bitch fest. Am I like, am I all heartbroken? Am I like, am, is my, are my guts churning in my stomach? And am I about to up? No, I'm not about to up check. You do what you have to do to get the shit that you want done done. And you work with what you have at the time to do that. That's just the rules. I don't make them up, okay? I didn't make that rule up. If you want to survive, you have to continue to breathe, right? If you want to survive, you have to continue to ingest food and water. If you want to build a business, you have to continue to do the things you may not want to do. I mean, channel acceptors kind of makes me a little, I don't know, kind of cringes me out a little bit, but Jack's trying to get this shit done. But, and... Honestly, we don't know what happens tomorrow or the next day or the day after that or the day after that or the day after that. I mean, I'll bet you Jack is like kind of going, I'd rather not do this, but for right now to get this shit to work, this is what we got to do. So that's what he's going to do. So that's one. Where's the other one? Um, I think that honestly, that's the only real criticism I have is, is channel acceptors. And what does it mean to be? You know, what does it mean to be interest, quote, interested in uh, an incoming channel? Does that mean how much, you know, uh, liquidity the channel has? Is it who is opening it to you? So the, 
these are the things to, to, you know, to think about. But in the end, he fixed his little red wagon and he did it damn quick. Because I remember it was just I, like Monday that they were, or like last Friday or something, that they were, have, they were having real problems uh, with the amount of channels that were being opened to them in the first place. And then all of a sudden the community kind of bands around him and says, I will help. Tell me how I can help. And I will do that. I will help you. I don't work for you. I don't get a paycheck from you. And, but I, by God, if there's something that I can do, I'll freaking help you out with that. And so, you know, there, there's all, there's all of that. So you can take it how you want, but LN strike seems to be, uh, on track. Uh, we shall see. I have yet to open to do all the things necessary to get LN strike done for myself and start using it. Uh, rest assured by the end of the weekend, I think that that's going to change. So let's see what are we anywhere close? Oh, nope. You know what? It's review time. As promised, I'm going to review the card game Shamari. Now, now this little thing, I'm holding the, the box right now. It's about the size of your standard. Well, it's not the size of your standard set of cards because there's a lot more cards in it. And they're slightly bigger. Uh, but let me, let me go through what uh, my son said. Now, remember, I'm talking about a seven-year-old. Loves this game. And I'm like, okay, look, I need you guys to help me review this this game. So what is it you like about the game? So my seven-year-old says, the art. Uh, the anime monsters, which they're not really anime, okay? They're just, they're, they're just drawn, okay? Anime's, a, but he, you know, come on. He, we're talking about seven. He liked the rewards. That was one of his favorite parts of the game was get, winning the reward. And, and this doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but again, seven years old, he wants to use the cards for a TV show, which I can only assume means that he wants to like, you know, film maybe the cards interacting with him because they have the monsters on them. So he doesn't have to draw them. I don't know. I thought it was cute. There you go. My daughter, on the other hand, all, well, not on the other hand, she loves it. But on the other hand, she doesn't know exactly why. And all she could really say about it was, I liked it all. I'm like, wait a minute, what about, you know, X or Y or Z? And she's like, I don't know what to tell you, Dad. I just liked everything about it. So there's your recommendations from a 7 and a 10-year-old. But let's get into a little bit more of a formal review here. The first thing that I noticed about this uh, set of cards, and, or, th well, the game. Okay, the first thing I noticed about the game is when I pulled it out of the box, the whole, everything about this game is Bitcoin orange. And let me, let me tell you about what that means. The box itself that the cards come in is essentially Bitcoin orange. And we're talking real close to the orange. In fact, I would imagine that they probably went and found the hexadecimal color and started from there when they were developing their color palette. And that'll, that'll come in here in a second. Um, oh yeah, that, that comes in right now because it has a cohesive color scheme. And what I mean by that is that you, you don't, when you, when you set about art and doing stuff, you really want to think about your color palette. And generally speaking, you kind of need a starting point. And it seems to me, and I could be 
100% blowing dumbass shit here. And the guys over at Shamari will, if they're listening to this, and I hope they do, that they will tell me just how wrong I am. But looking at the color scheme of all the cards, and there's many colors in here. I mean, there's, you know, the, the colors of the cards, there's some uh, blue. Uh, there's like, let's see here. I'm just kind of, I'm just kind of, I'm rifling through my, my deck right now just to kind of, yeah, there's some blue, uh, monsters. There's some purple monsters. There's some green going on here, but in the end, what's going on is the fact that the color palette seems to me to be centered on Bitcoin orange insofar as if I were to grab a color wheel, right? And I start with Bitcoin orange and then I start doing the calculations on the color wheel to find complementary colors. I'm going to get a whole bunch of colors that are not orange, but the tonality of the color, the different colors, they all, they all go together. There's not a screen, like I can lay them all out on the, uh, all the cards out mixed up and it all is cohesive. And I think that that is really important, especially to kids, because there's nothing that just, there's nothing that stands out color-wise that says, you know, that makes a kid go, that doesn't belong. Because I guarantee you, children know when shit's wrong. They don't know why it's wrong. They just know something's off. Nothing was off here. Everything, I mean, from starting with Bitcoin or orange to using that to develop the color palette and Getting those printed on high quality cardstock is going to be my pretty much my third main point here. Uh, printing them on, printing all these beautiful colors in this color palette uh, that they work so hard on, and printing them on very high quality cardstock is sort of like, dude, I, when I pulled them out of the box, I could feel it. It wasn't like a cheap, set of cards that they, you know, printed at like Joe Blow's backyard print shop and then put them on a, one of those guillotine cutters and then did it all by hand. No, these things are, are professional. They are well glossed. They are thick. And that means when I picked them up, the very first thing that I thought was this deck is going to last a long time. Although maybe not as long as I think, because my kids are very much in love with playing this game. Uh, so let's get into the second part of the review as to what this game kind of does. Now, a guy, you know, again, guys, never really done a full review on a product before, so bear with me. I may screw this all up, but what I'm thinking of is that you know I've got down here is that it teaches kids a couple of things. One of the primary things that came that fell out of the very first time that I was doing this, playing this with my children, was that my daughter understood at the end of it that the nonce must match the target. Now, she doesn't know what exactly that means because she's 10, right? So give her a break. But she knew, and I could go ask her, I'd go, how do you mine a block? And she'd go, the nonce must match the target. That's a start. That's all you need is a start. They just need an entry point to be able to understand this beautiful machine that we have been given, right? So the second thing is, is that they understand what a 51% attack is as far as they can. They understand that, dude, we really need to build the blockchain up, or let's say time chain. We really need to build that up 
and very, very, and they also understood that you want to build it up quickly so that you can defend against a 51% attack. Cause that's, that's a whole deal. There's, you know, a set of block cards and there's a set of attack cards and they go side by side. So when someone win, when a nonce matches the target and you win the block, you put the Genesis block down. And if you win another block, block, you know, number one goes on, goes on top. So you're building a block, you know, in this case, a, a time chain. And then if you roll on the dice, they give you one dice and five of them allow you to take your turn uh, finding a nonce or turning over the memory cards and trying to match the target card. But there's one on there that's an attack card and it's only one move that you can make and that's to turn over an attack card and lay it next to the blockchain. If you have more, if you roll more attacks than you've rolled, uh, uh, or if you've rolled more attacks than you've won blocks, everybody loses because the game is automatically over because everybody lost all their money. It's a 51, it's a successful 51 attack. And, but also when you're looking at it, you're seeing the, the blockchain grow. And if your attacks are not more than the, if, if the 51% attack hasn't reached 51, you literally get a visual representation of that by how the cards are stacked up on the table, one against each other. And is, and all they're looking at is the attack chain is still not as long as the main chain. The attack chain is still not as long as the main chain. And for that, they, they end up getting pretty happy. Now, in all this, whenever it is that you do turn over one of the nonce cards and it matches the target, whoever did that gets a reward card. Now, more on that later, uh, but suffice it to say right now that each one of the reward cards just shows one of these cute little monster guys holding up a single Bitcoin. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's, that's going to come back into play here in a second. But let's get on to the, the last main thing that, that is covered by this game is the difficulty adjustment. That's an interesting situation and is very, and is clearly a frustration that is experienced by all the players of the game. If you turn over in the field of memory cards, if you turn over there there's a hit depending on how you start the game, I usually start as they suggest with children to only put in uh like one difficulty card in the field and uh like and keep a couple on the side but there's like i think there's like 14 or 15 difficulty adjustment cards they look like the rest of the nonce cards except when you turn them over instead of a monster a type of monster that is the same monster as the target card it's a completely different monster holding up a banner that says difficulty adjustment and it's like oh god now here is where i'm a little confused about the rules is when we hit the difficulty adjustment, that means that the field of playing cards or the nonce cards that we're trying to, to find to match the target becomes expanded. But what, and again, if I'm getting this completely wrong because I don't read good, <laughs> please forgive me. But I turn the card back over and then I like shuffle all the rest of the, all the, rest of the cards so that we don't know where the difficulty card is. Um, because that makes sense to me. And, and this kind of goes into a point that I'll reiterate later in the review is that the game is open-ended enough that you can kind of adjust it to how it is that you think. And it doesn't seem to do anything but 
have just still a, a fun game, but it may be slightly different than what the uh, developers of the game actually thought. So I may be playing the game in a completely different way, and it doesn't matter because the game is freaking fun, man. So difficulty adjustment lets the kids, you know, basically the kids automatically know it's like, oh God, now there's one more card that we have to turn over, which is going to make the whole thing harder. They get it. Okay. They get it. All these things are the touch points for children to understand or begin their understanding of something that they're going to be using for the rest of their life, even though that they don't know it yet, because my children are born at the very, a very odd time in human history. Um, I am alive during a very odd time in human history, but you need some touch points to get in there. And I think this game gives them enough touch points that they become interested. And we'll get to that later. But, and this is like, I go go ahead and lead, that was a lead in into the fact that it, it does provide the ability uh, because it's relatively open-ended to insert your own knowledge about what Bitcoin is. So not only is it a situation where you can kind of change the, not change the rules, but interpret the rules the way that you see how Bitcoin works in very fundamental ways. Not, not like, you know, nuanced, you know, niche ways, but like, you know, like, would I leave the difficulty card, you know, over so that we could all see the difficulty card? Then it really wouldn't make the game any more difficult, but that may be the way that it's supposed to be played, but I don't think so. Also, since I'm shuffling the cards every single diff- every time we get a difficulty card, since I'm shuffling the field of of uh, nonce cards on the table, then anybody who thought that they knew where something was now they don't know where it is. That's that's some difficult shit right there, right? So, um, now when I when I get let's get on into this where it says that the uh, oh oh where where I say <laughs> I wrote down notes. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm looking at them. One of the things that I thought was the most amazing thing about this game when playing with kids. And my son is a, he's a fierce competitor. And I mean, he's so fierce in competition that it worries me because he does not like to lose. And yeah, he kind of throws a fit when he loses something. Uh, I don't like that. I'm, I'm trying to wean him off that, but I do like the fact that he is a fierce competitor. I've never once seen him play a game where competition wasn't just about him. We weren't competing against each other to win, even though the rules state whoever with the most rewards at the end of the game wins. He, he gets that. And that was like at first, a very first time, and he didn't win, he kind of threw a fit. But the second time that we played, he started doing this. His sister would turn over a card. The nonce matches the target. She wins a reward. But because of the attack chain being ever present, he cheered because he knew he was going to win too. And we'll come back to that. My daughter did the exact same thing. The next thing I know, it didn't matter who won a block. We didn't give a shit. As long as we were ahead of the attack chain, then all of us were all of us won that round. And I don't think that the guys that developed Shamari, I'm not sure if they under not understand that. I'm not sure if that's in their mind. I'm not sure if it was in their mind. I'm not sure if it's in their mind right now. But guys, you may have hit upon a 
a really cool game mechanic that I've never really seen before, where every single person wins when any individual person wins a round. It's us. If you guys meant to do that, then you guys are brilliant. If you completely didn't mean to do that, it's still completely brilliant. Excellent work on discovering this game mechanic. It's absolutely beautiful when it comes to children. All right. So, uh, what's the other one? Um, oh, okay. This is going to be the final part of the review, but it's my favorite part because remember what I what I said about the rules. At the end of the game, and the end of the game is this, either one or two things happen. Either the attack chain blows your ass out of the water and you got to start a completely new round and, and reshuffle everything and start all over, or you lay down all 10 blocks. There's 10 block cards, okay? And it's perfectly balanced with the amount of nonce cards and target cards that there is. So kudos to balancing on on this it's a very well balanced game um so technically the rules say that whoever has the most reward cards wins okay fine so i end the game with five reward cards my daughter has three and my son has one remember the competitiveness nature of 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 this okay he wasn't so happy about the fact that he technically lost the game until I pulled out my uh, calculator and said, well, that one reward card is technically worth 6.25 Bitcoin at this moment. And he's like, okay. So we talked a little bit about how that changes over time. And like before it was 12 and a half and now it's 6.25 and all that kind of thing. And uh, got to talk to, so that opened up that discussion where I was able to tell them how the inflation schedule, even though I don't use those terms, uh, how the inflation schedule runs or issuance. I, I, it should be issuance and not inflation. So I just looked at him and I go, okay, well, it's 6.25 Bitcoin. And the price at the time was right around, I think it was like 9,500. I did the math for him on the calculator. He no longer lost because the first thing he said was, I have that much money. This is that much money. And what, what can I buy with it? Like, that's actually a, probably enough money to buy, you know, a, a very small house in West Texas. And his eyes just got huge. And then I did my daughter who had three and I'm like, yeah, that's, that's like a, that's a lot. That's, you could probably buy a, I don't know, a, a, a Lambo and my son likes Lambo. So his eyes opened up again hers shot open. And then I did like, I'm holding five and they're like, what could you buy with that? And I'm like, I don't know, an airplane, <laughs> a small plane. Nobody was sad. I, we, you can end this game with the fiercest competitive child that you have. And if you insert your own mechanisms to guide the way that the gameplay goes, because they've left it open-ended, I don't know if they did it on purpose or not, doesn't matter, but they've left it open-ended you can figure out a way that explains the own, that there's only one losing state. 51, a, a successful 51% attack. So there's my review on the Shamari card game. So go over to at play S-H-A-M-O-R-Y. Buy a pack today. If you've got kids, 
they're going to like it. If they don't like it, then they're going to love it. And if they don't do either, then you probably don't have children. So buy a pack or two today and start playing, man. It's a great game. So that's going to do it for my very first ever product review. Okay, welcome to the Morning Roundup, a.k.a. the snooze you can use. Uh, I'm going to start this one out. It's going to be a little bit long. It's by Imran Lorgat from Bitcoin Magazine. Please don't sue me because I didn't ask permission, but this is important. And the reason it's important is that there I got into a bit of a, a, bit of a squabble with uh, my favorite chihuahua in the space, uh, Dieter Bob. Um, he, will even, he will even give me shit. I mean, I've known him for a long time. And if I, I've said it before, I'll say it again, man. He is your canary in the coal mine to see if you're anywhere going anywhere close to being off the rails. I mean, if you're even a hint going in the wrong direction, he'll let you ask no. And it's good to have that kind of thing. But inevitably, it w- I was going to cross wires with, with Dieter Bob. Still love you, bro. Okay? Don't, you know, don't take any of this shit personally. Uh, but I have come to realize that Dieter Bob hates the Lightning Network, or at least that's what it appears over the last couple of days. He says it doesn't work. He's never been able to get it to work. There's like, he's like five wallets in and he's never been able to get any of them to work. He mentioned Blue Wallet, which I I have and it works for me. I've used it several times, so I don't know what's going on. But there's, uh, Imran has written this one called Grandma's on Lightning. And he wrote this, he wrote this yesterday. So I guess he was maybe seeing some flack about lightning as well. So let's, you know, let's just get, ah, fuck it. Let's get on with it. I've spent a huge part of the last three years explaining Bitcoin to general audiences. And the most common form of resistance I encounter is, quote, Bitcoin is too complicated. The masses will never understand it. It's a fair argument. Bitcoin is complicated, and if you want to reach a competent understanding of the big picture, then at minimum, you'd better be ready to learn about peer-to-peer networks, cryptography, and the history of money. It is for this reason that I find it bizarre when I hear from friends in the space that Bitcoin is inevitable. There's a belief that one day the masses will suddenly realize the merits of Bitcoin and adopt it on their own. This is certainly not what happened with me. To get to an understanding of Bitcoin I was comfortable with, I had to spend hours with articles, books, podcasts, videos, and debating the concepts online. This content had to be produced by other people. Maybe if Andreas Antonopoulos didn't upload 500 videos or Nathaniel Popper didn't write digital gold, then I might still have been in the crowd saying, lol, scam. There's a counterbelief as well. And it's that Bitcoin is simply too complicated for mere mortals to understand and that mass adoption will only happen when Bitcoin and the Lightning Network are so simple that grandmas can use it. In the gates of Bitcoin, John Carvalho calls this the grandma's razor fallacy, the elitist belief that new tech is too complicated and we need to protect people from it for their own good. He also points out, quote, thankfully, humans have demonstrated a propensity for figuring shit out when they have the improper with the proper incentive to do so. We've seen this play out over and over in Bitcoin's 11-year story. In 2011, Winkle leak or Winkle, WikiLeaks learned how to use Bitcoin very quickly after Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, and Western Union cut it off because of threats from the U.S. Senate. 
despite Satoshi Nakamoto himself gatekeeping and telling WikiLeaks to not use Bitcoin to circumvent the U.S. government, WikiLeaks did it anyway, and it's estimated to have received some 4,000 BTC in donations. Not only did this keep it alive, despite a coordinated effort to kill it financially, it gave it a treasure chest that allows it to persist until today. Another example, and my favorite, is from 2014, the Women's Annex Foundation, or the WAF, in Afghanistan used Bitcoin to pay their members for their work in writing, software development, and video editing. This was under Taliban rule, where women were not allowed to own bank accounts earn a living, or even go to school. Incentives are a powerful thing. When it's a matter of life and death, people suddenly discover it's not that hard to download a mobile app and copy and paste an address. Bitcoin suddenly becomes not all that complicated. I want to break down the idea of Bitcoin's complexity a little further. There are layers to it. Bitcoin is certainly hard to understand, but that doesn't mean it's hard to use. Most people can drive a car or send an email without understanding the internal combustion engine or simple mail transfer protocol, SMTP. And certainly both of those were considered, quote, too complicated for the masses. The very idea of difficulty can be unpacked further. For now, I'll break it down into two concepts, technical difficulty and perceived difficulty. Technical difficulty is the skill required to execute something like downloading an app or driving a car or playing the violin. You have to learn to use the tool. Designers can partially lower the skill required by creating user-friendly tools, but they cannot eliminate it. Yet, when we look at the number of people who can drive cars and use social media, we see that millions of people, including grandmas, are willing to learn complex operations if you can offer them the opportunity to drive to the mall or fight with anonymous people on Twitter. Perceived difficulty is the psychological hurdle, the belief that something is difficult. It's when someone says, I don't understand calculus, it's too hard. Then you ask them how long they've studied it, and they say, well, I haven't tried because it's too hard. Perceived difficulty shows up all the time. People will claim that going on a diet or studying for a test are too hard, when from a technical difficulty perspective, these things are easy. Don't eat the cake. Go to your room and study. The problem really is incentives. People don't want to study. They do want to eat the cake. Getting them to change behavior has nothing to do with technical difficulty and everything to do with addressing why they do or don't want to do these things in the first damn place. I've encountered perceived difficulty many times in Bitcoin. The most glaring times are the repeated examples where people would message me to say that they bought a large sum of Bitcoin but kept it on an exchange. Every single time I would explain that this is a bad idea. And every time I would hear back, it's too complicated. This prompted me to write not one but two articles. First, on why keeping Bitcoin on an exchange is a bad idea. And second, how to set up a wallet, both as short and simple as possible. I sent both articles to one of those people. Finally, he relented. He downloaded a wallet, backed up a seed phrase, and took his Bitcoin off the exchange. Okay, fine, he told me in the end. That wasn't so hard. With Lightning, we might eventually be able to take the technical difficulty of using Bitcoin all the way down. On the Lightning Network, you don't need to think about blocks, confirmations, or fees. As the network matures, you may not even have to worry about channels or capacity either. And with products like Strike, you may not even have to know that you're using Lightning at all. The dream of Lightning is to eventually provide a dead simple user experience that still gives people the freedom and autonomy Bitcoin is known for. But even if that experience becomes available tomorrow, the perceived difficulty would remain. 
the good news is that perceived difficulty is ultimately a culture. When I was a kid, using a computer was considered so abstruse you needed a computer course to be considered competent enough to use one. Today, you are considered functionally illiterate if you cannot use a computer by age 10. But the culture doesn't change on its own. We need to change it if we want Bitcoin to be all that it can be for those who need it. We need to alter the perception and align the incentives, and then one day we'll have more grandmas in Bitcoin. If you want to see what this looks like, read up about Hodel and Knott's LN Trust Chain. Carvalho was there, number 115. I was there, number 171. Bitcoin Magazine was there, number 235. And a lot of people who said is too, Bitcoin is too complicated weren't there. But do you know who was there? A grandma. And the tweet is from Ibelite, uh, A or at I-B-E-L-I-T-E. This is how he ends this article. It says, at 88, my grandmother is able to text, FaceTime, stream YouTube videos to a TV. She encouraged me to attend a lightning hackathon and she's ready to take the lightning torch next so she can be the oldest person to do so. And then there's a picture of this fabulous, fabulous young lady. And no, by young, I mean the 88-year-old holding a, a piece of paper that says, hello, my name is Sonia. And on February the 18th, 2019, I received the lightning torch. Thank you to CoinGecko, Hodel and Knott, and Elizabeth Stark. Bitcoin plus lightning equals future. That's the end of the article, but kind of gave me a little bit of chills. Maybe even teared up a little bit because this woman is 88 years old and she can freaking use lightning. It's not that hard. What is hard is buckling it down, sitting your ass in a chair, and experimenting and experimenting and experimenting until you learn how to do it. I am not 100% competent on how to do all this shit. I'm lucky if I'm 4% competent on how to do all this shit. But I can use lightning. So can Sonya. Let's do some numbers. I got me a market full of meh. S&P 500 is down 0.1. NASDAQ down a half. Dow Jones down a quarter. The FTSE's up 0.09. Woohoo! Nikkei is down, I don't know, a third of a point. Uh, Hang Seng is down 1.6. That's the big mover today. And then the VIX uh, volatility index has dropped uh, 0.75 of a point. Uh, bonds are all up except for the U.S. three-month and the German 10-year pile of toilet paper. Uh, let's see. Is there any, I mean, these are all like changes to like 0.02, 0.03. So again, meh. Had a drop in oil, uh, 1.45% to the downside. West Texas Intermediate chilling out at 4134. Uh, natural gas is still on the rise. It's had a point and a third to the upside, bringing a MCF to $2.19. Gold had a drop, but only 1.38%. It's still above $2,000, an ounce at $2,040. Silver took a little bit of a nosedive, 1.3 also, but it's still chilling out at $28 an ounce. So, 
And if you want to know about wheat, I guess you can buy a contract for $500. I don't know what a contract of wheat is. I Do they just, I mean, how much wheat is that? Anyway, whatever. Let's talk about real money. I got Bitcoin at 11654 Let's see. That may be the high. Is that going to be the high? That is the high price for the day. I have a low over at Bitstamp. Looks like it's going to have 11624 326,000 transactions have been made in the last 24 hours. That's 13,600 transactions on average per hour. Sub 1 million BTC or 945,000 BTC have been sent in that period. 39,400 BTC are being sent on average per hour. And the average transaction fee or value is 2.89 BTC. Median transaction value 0.049 BTC. And that's about $573. You pause right there just to tell you that I used to think that $300 was kind of nominal for me. I haven't seen it that low, the median transaction value in dollar terms. I have not seen lower than 400 in like a month. So take that for what you will. Block times are low, nine minutes and seven seconds. One BTC is being taken as a fee on a per block basis and 158.8 BTC have been taken in fees overall in the last 24 hours. There it is. 13.5% rise to the upside on hash rate brings us to 130.738 exahashes per second. Ethereum at 386.7, Bcash at 315, BSV at 232, Litecoin at 58.8, Ethereum Classic at 7 bucks, Dogecoin holding it at 0.0035, transactions on the Doge network in the last 24 hours. makes Litecoin, Ethereum Classic, and Bcash look very, very, very silly. Let's look at Clark Moody. Uh, Clark Moody is looking at a mempool that only has 9,962 transactions, which will take about 38 blocks to clear, according to this. Uh, The price Clark Moody has for Bitcoin is 11,640. And in the Lightning Network, we have 970.6 BTC. That means $11.3 million USD in liquidity across 7,322 nodes, representing 36,461 channels. A drop in Tor capacity to 434.22 BTC brings the percentage of Tor capacity on the Lightning Network down 0.1 to 44.7%. We still have 2,134 Tor nodes. That's going to do it for Vital. Welcome to part two of the morning roundup. This is Out of Crypto Potato. Author is George Georgiev. George Georgiev. Nice. Good name, dude. Uh, It was done was pinned yesterday. Uh, More than $1 billion worth of BTC has just been transferred for a total fee of $4. Despite appearing as a comparatively low, uh, the Bitcoin transaction fees have increased by more than 500% in the last month. Bitcoin network is known for a lot of things and low transaction fees are undoubtedly one of them. Less than an hour ago, we saw another example of this upwards of $1 billion worth of BTC being transferred from one address to another for a fee of $4 at current rates. 
Whale transactions are not uncommon in the cryptocurrency field. At the beginning of July, CryptoPotato reported that someone had moved $933 million worth of Bitcoin for about 50 cents. This represented about 0.5% of Bitcoin's total supply. Now, another transaction of similar proportions took place less than an hour ago. According to Whale Alert, someone transferred 92000 857 BTC worth $1 billion for four bucks. While the transaction in Whale Alert's interface shows that the sender was Zappo, someone has pointed out that it's not. Instead, the user pointed out that this is a BitGo custodial wallet for Bitstamps cold storage that was migrated in October 2019. In any case, the transaction fee Despite being particularly low compared to what traditional financial institutions would charge for an amount of that kind, is still substantially higher than the one carried out last month. Mm -hmm. Indeed, looking at Bitcoin transaction fees, there's a tremendous increase over the last 30 days. BitInfo chart shows that on July the 5th, the average transaction fee for Bitcoin's network was around 83 cents. Yesterday, the same metric was $5.35. This is a total increase of more than 540%. I'll get in, I'll tear this apart in a second, I promise. This could be explained by the increased usage of the network. Looking at the mempool, wrong, which displays the total aggregate size and bytes of transactions that wait to be confirmed. We can see that on July the 7th, the number was around 10 million, while today it is around 48 million. In other words, people who want their transactions to be prioritized would currently have to pay an increased fee to the miners. Okay. That's the end of the article, but that's not the end of how badly this got jacked up. Okay, it is true that fees are higher right now because there's way more activity on the network and miners are going to want to, they want, they want their chunk of flesh, bro. I mean, they're humans. I mean, I guess you could like, I don't, I don't know. I guess you make, make a robot rich and have them spend all the money and they don't care. But as long as you're dealing with the human spirit, you're going to get shit. Okay, that's the way it is. Second, dude, try moving any amount of, I mean, like digital cash that's worth a billion from a U.S. bank to something like the middle of Africa. Two things. One, will they even let you do it because you need permission for that shit? And two, if they do allow you to do it, they're going to charge you way more than four bucks and it's going to take way longer than getting confirmed in the next damn block. Okay. Now, the real tearing apart of this comes right here. When it says, let's see, where, where, where I got to get back to it. Uh, yeah. Okay. The fees have increased from 83 cents to an average of $5.35. This could be explained by the increased usage of the network. You know what else it could be explained by? The increased impatience of the people that want to move the money. It's not the net, the network is comprised of not only the nodes and the miners and all the transactions going through it. It's the people behind the wallet that's making the decision to pay something like five bucks for a transaction. You don't have to do that. You can pay one Satoshi a byte. Okay. And not like, I don't know what, what is this? Uh, I just, I, I'm seeing like, like people paying 600, 6,000 Satoshis a byte to get something in. That's not predicated by the network. That's predicated by the humans that accept the fee that they're going to pay when they hit send. This has nothing. Well, this has 
less to do with what the network wants or requires as much as the impatience of the humans that are making the send. If you don't keep those two things separate, you're always going to think Mahafiz, and it's complete bullshit. And this is what got us in trouble in the block size debate shit from 2015 to 2017 and throughout 2018, even after the whole community had split to go to BCH, which then itself split into BSV and BCH. And now there's some nonsense called BCC out there, and it's just going to get worse. Don't let this happen to you. Be smart. Understand the network doesn't require it. The people that are using the network to send money are requiring it. It's their fault, not Bitcoin's. Stop it. One million Bitcoin wallets are now being used every day, bro. Shara Malwa writing it for Decrypt.co sometime this morning. Bitcoin averaged over 1 million daily active addresses for the first time since January of 2018, according to data from Bitcoin analytics firm Glassnode. The metrics, or metric, calculates the number of unique addresses that were active in the network, either as a sender or a receiver. Only addresses that were active in successful transactions are counted, as per Glassnode. The 1 million average daily mark for active addresses was last seen in the months following Bitcoin's epic price rise to 20000 in late 2017. The asset was largely written off by mainstream media at the time, but it seems to have staged to come back. The uptick in addresses coincided with a rise in Bitcoin prices in the past two weeks. Meanwhile, the chart from Glassnode shows the two metrics have been largely correlated since 2018, but not prior to that year. And they give the chart and that is in fact, that seems to be kind of the case. The metric is indicative of growing public sentiment in the crypto market, especially as investors seek to hedge high inflation by investing in alternative assets such as Bitcoin and gold. Big wallets are growing too. Lucas Nuzzi, 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 the co-founder of crypto research firm DAR Crypto or D-A-R, Remarked on Twitter that the number of addresses holding $10 or more of Bitcoin has hit an all-time high of 16.6 million addresses. The same goes for Ethereum with 6 million addresses holding $10 or more of crap. He said this is millions of addresses more than it was at the top of the 2017 bubble. Meanwhile, Glassnode noted that the number of larger whales referring to any addresses holding tens of millions of dollars in Bitcoin has steadily declined in the past few years. Quote, the percentage of supply owned by entities holding upwards of 10 BTC grew from 5.1% to 13.8% in five years, while the percent held by entities with 100 to 100,000 BTC declined from 62.9 to 49.8, the firm said. That's very interesting. The metric showed that despite its 381 obituaries in mainstream media, Bitcoin's very much still alive. And in the article, they have 381 obituaries uh, underlined. Uh, that takes you, in case you don't know about this, 99coins.com forward slash Bitcoin hyphen obituaries. And this says, yes, indeed. Um, 99bitcoins.com has Bitcoin obituaries at 381. So, uh, good Lord. Let's see. What's, what's the most recent death? June 21st, 2020. The value of Bitcoin will drop to zero, <laughs> says Yuri Shalev. 
And let's see what he says about it. It's, it's just a little blurb. Investor Jim Rogers said, oh, okay, Jim Rogers said, cryptocurrencies, inclu including Bitcoin, will be in decline eventually and everything will go to zero. Those who use cryptocurrency think they are smarter than their governments, Rogers said to an era dot, whatever that is. In fact, I think they are correct, but their governments have something that crypto people don't have. That is guns. I tend to disagree. There's 400 million guns in the United States. It's a lot of guns per Bitcoiner. The reason why I think cryptocurrency will be gone eventually is that it is not based on the armed force of government's power. This is the kind of drivel that you will see when somebody, whenever anybody calls the death of Bitcoin. This is one of a handful of, of ass-wiping arguments that you're going to get. It's filled with fear. It's filled with, and I mean fear like they have guns. You should be scared. I am not fucking scared. I'm going to die one day anyway. I'm, all of us are. Is there anything that you will fight for, Jim Rogers? Is there any amount of freedom that you will try to gain? Or will you just lick the boot every time it's shown to you? That's what you will get at 99 Bitcoins. And 99 Bitcoins is, is great. I mean, I love that they're providing this service. Don't get me wrong. I'm not bitching at 99 Bitcoins because without them, we would not see things such as uh, the very first, uh, let's see, yeah, the very first obituary was in 2010. Negative feedback loops like this are basically homeostasis in nature. Positive feedback loops like exist with Bitcoin are lethal. The only thing that has even kept Bitcoin alive this long is its novelty. Either it will remain a novelty forever or it will transform from novelty status to dead faster than you can blink. So we've hit the very first and the very last Bitcoin obituary ever. Go to 99bitcoins.com for more fun and games because this is some stupid ass shit right here. Okay, speaking of analysis, most DeFi tokens are concentrated into the hands of top 500 holders. A new analysis suggests that the token supplies for most DeFi projects are not widely distributed with up to 99% held by the top 500 addresses. Token supply, oh, crediting Joshua Mapperson is writing this one for Cointelegraph sometime this morning. Token supplies for most DeFi projects are not widely distributed. He compiled, or uh, sorry, um, I, I missed, messed up. <laughs> According to an analysis by the co-founder of DeFi Italy and head of Crypto Labs Digital Assets Investments, Simone Conti, he compiled data from DeFi Pulse and Etherscan that suggests that 90% of tokens for almost all DeFi projects are held by top 500 addresses. For three of the projects, that figure rises to 99%. According to a graphic shared by Conti, Compound is the most concentrated of the top 10 surveyed projects. Uh, with 96% of total supply being held by a few dozen people in the top 50 holders. The top five addresses for the vast majority of DeFi projects hold over 40% of their respective total supplies. Bancor is the only anomaly, but even there, the top five addresses hold 33% of the supply. Conti observed that projects born from the recent DeFi boom tended to be more widely distributed than those that were launched later. The tracking of token distribution remains a tricky task, however, as different analysts produce 
widely different figures based on the criteria of which addresses to include. Head of DTC Capital, Spencer Noon, believes that Yearn.Finance or the Wi-Fi or YFI is one of the most well-distributed DeFi tokens on Ethereum with the top five addresses holding less than 10% of the total supply. Why the hell am I even talking about this shit? Because DeFi is all over the place. You cannot get away from it and nobody knows what yield farming means. I know what it means. Scam. Say it with me, people. Scam. You're being scammed out of your money. And if you don't know it, I got, I, if you're going to defend this shit, I, I can't help you. I just can't. I wish I could, but I can't. Okay. So just lose your money. Also, the reason to say this, all DeFi is, is ICO 2.0. That's all it is. And they're going to, and, and after the DeFi craze is over, they're going to wrap it into ICO 3.0. And it'll be something else. And it'll be something else. The rule of thumb is if you're going to send your money to a thing, that thing better be Bitcoin. And you can do that with Swan Bitcoin. You can do that with River Financial. And you can do that with Cash App. These are the three companies that I trust to actually give me real Bitcoin that I'm going to be able to take off of their centralized exchange and put onto my private wallet. Because without that shit, it ain't your keys and it ain't your Bitcoin. And all the rest of this is smoke and mirrors and you will just lose your money. All right, million dollar Bitcoin transfers show growing institutional activity. Now we've already seen a couple of these whale reports. Let's see what Sharwa Malwa has to say about this one. Also writing for Decrypt also this morning. Institutional investors in the United States are transferring larger volumes of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies than their European and Asian counterparts. On-chain analytic firm Chainalysis uh, said in a report on Thursday, in its analysis of key trends in the North American crypto space, Chainalysis found out professional investors continue to disproportionately favor Bitcoin over other cryptocurrencies. However, this trend was only just beginning, the firm noted. Quote, the increasing dominance of North America's professional crypto market since December of 2019 appears to be almost entirely driven by transfers of $1 million or more worth of cryptocurrency, many of which we believe are coming from institutional investors, said Chainalysis. They added, quote, over the last two years in North America, we're seeing the impact of a growing class of institutional investors whose transfers accounts uh, to, whose transfers account for the growing dominance of professionals in the North American market since December of 2019. Bitcoin transactions in North America worth $1 million and above rose from 46% to 57% in May of 2020. Meanwhile, the so the so term professional so-called professional market share, I think is what they mean. Meanwhile, the so called professional market share, referring to the transfer activity by institutional accounts of crypto transfers in North America rose from 87 to 92% in the same period, the report stated. Meanwhile, even as institutions seem convinced with the crypto narrative, regulators are yet to catch on. However, chain analysis, head of research, Kimberly Grower, stated lawmakers would trust the space more as they understand it better. Quote, we expect that as regulators and financial institutions better understand the benefits of cryptocurrencies transparency, they will start to trust the space more, said Grr. Quote, institutional money is only just beginning to enter the cryptocurrency ecosystem, so the market is still relatively immature and fragmented. 
The report comes as Bitcoin moved 15% to briefly over 12K after ranging between a narrow price band of 9,200 and 9,500 from May to July and members of the United States Senate seeking better regulations for the broader crypto market, including the development of a digital dollar. And now even Goldman Sachs wants to enter the market. So there you go. Uh, Not only are like, not only are more people, more addresses active, we have whale song pretty much all over the damn place. And what's good about that is that a lot of that, that they were talking about, that's why I was emphasizing the term North America. You're seeing more of this in North America. So just, yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. Okay. Is there anything else? Yep. Let's do this one. Blockchain energy trading pilot using Bitcoin sidechain goes live in Los Angeles. Andriy Shevchenko is writing this one for Cointelegraph sometime this morning. Energy and transportation startup EV Share is launching a community energy sharing pilot in Los Angeles. The initiative, which received $20 million in partner funding and $9 million in grants from the energy, California Energy Commission, is set to test the application of blockchain technology in managing a localized renewable energy grid. The system relies on collecting or sorry, connecting local solar energy systems with electricity-based transportation to create an organic energy market. The goal is to connect 50 households to a localized grid used to provide energy for a pool of shared electric vans. A blockchain system based on the RSK Bitcoin sidechain and the RSK infrastructure framework developed by its parent company, IOV Labs, will power the sharing economy in this pilot. The blockchain will record data on solar panels, energy storage, electric vehicles, and charging infrastructure. The data will be used to support a carbon credit trading market. Participants will be rewarded with tokens when they conduct actions that reduce the carbon footprint, such as van pooling, generating and using renewable energy, and other unspecified actions. The tokens will be spendable for electricity consumption and rides to encourage a circular economy for carbon credits. The pilot is being launched in Bassett, a community in L.A. County. Residents in the neighborhood will be able to download the Green Commuter app to sign up. Eduardo Javier Munoz the CEO of EveShare told Cointelegraph that the project has been in preparation for some time. Quote, the Energy Coalition, which is the leader of the project, has been engaging the community to commit to the project for over two years already. End quote. Munoz said that the blockchain is necessary to register, certify, and validate transactions and carbon credits between assets in an automated way through smart contracts. Benefits also include the increase in transparency while the use of blockchain makes process, processes significantly more efficient to levels that are honestly unknown these days, he added. RSK is a smart contract platform that uses a pegged version of Bitcoin as its native token and is merged mined with the Bitcoin blockchain to derive security from its mining ecosystem. The project has a relatively strong focus on enterprise and government partnerships. Recently announcing a banking pilot in Argentina, it is also developing a decentralized finance ecosystem that is positioned as Bitcoin DeFi due to RSK's connection with the main network. Other blockchain systems have been used in energy pilots across the world in 2020. Cointelegraph reported on similar projects launching in Thailand, Germany, Austria, and Japan. These have been launched by a variety of companies in collaboration with local partners and authorities. The project spearheaded by EveShare is, nevertheless, 
among the first such pilots to be launched in the United States, and it has a stronger focus on energy usage through electric vehicles. So there you go. I I don't know. I mean, I I don't know that much about RSK. I don't know if I mean I it's not technically Bitcoin, so it's a shit coin, but whatever. I don't care anymore. I, I don't need to worry about it. This is what I don't need to worry about. It. This is why Bitcoin. So I don't need to worry about what the hell RSK does, even if it is a Bitcoin sidechain using the liquid network. I don't give a shit. Personally, I would like to see all this be absorbed into a uh, a different second level or second layer other than Lightning or on Lightning itself. I don't know and I don't care. It's just another project that would be layer two or possibly even layer three doing this kind of thing just on the on the main chain, not on a side chain. But, I, you know, I'm not a time chain engineer, so it, this may be easier. In either event, what's weird is the, the whole carbon credit thing. We're probably going to be looking square at the face in a, a carbon economy over the next few years. Uh, the pandemic and all the weirdness going on, uh, MMT, people just being helicopter moneyed is probably going to be one of the things that allows the carbon credit economy or carbon economy, as they're calling it, to actually usher itself forth. I have a specific idea about mining Bitcoin and in so doing, converting woody mass to uh, to straight up carbon. And I'm not talking about carbon dioxide. I'm talking about charcoal. Uh, one of these days I may flesh that one out and let the community have it. Cause I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull it off, but in that particular case, it would be interesting because I'd be burning not fossil fuels, but I'd be transforming wood into carbon, harvesting the energy released off of that and also producing carbon dioxide. So I wouldn't technically, if it, the math is done right and the process is controlled correctly, I'd actually be net, I'd be carbon neutral and I'd be, I'd, you know what? I'm just going to stop right there. Uh, carbon economy is probably coming. You're probably going to see it. I would rather it be powered by Bitcoin than anything else, but it's coming nonetheless. There's, that's all I got to say about that one. Uh, let's see. Oh, Bitmain delays uh, Bitcoin miner shipments by three months. Because the co-founders are still in a cage match. This is actually a set of bullet points by Wolfie Zhao out of Coindesk sometime yesterday. Let's see. Delay is caused. Let's see. Where is, yeah, the delay is caused by external interference over the company's management. Uh, another bullet point says it's important to note that Bitcoin miners are typically sold via pre-orders, which must be made two or three months in advance. This means customers who ordered in... June and July batches could have placer orders as early as March and April. Uh, there's another one. The delay comes amid the escalating fight of control of Bitmain or for control of Bitmain between its two co-founders, Wu Jihan or Jihan Wu and uh, McCree on Quechuan, which is essentially hard fork the firm's Bitcoin miner production. It's just a circus over at Bitmain. So yeah, expect delays on shipments of your Bitmain stuff. And finally, Sundays are the perfect time to buy the Bitcoin dip data shows. Finally, somebody has answered the age old question. 
when should I buy Bitcoin? And yes, that's actually been a question that's been like floated for the last couple of years is like, because everybody wants to buy the dip, but you got to watch the charts all the damn time to figure out where the damn dip is, you know, to be able to see the dip so that you can pull the trigger on buying the damn dip. Otherwise, like people like me have said, well, is there any way that I can automate buying when the RSI is below this number? You know, and do if it hits that number like within a month, three times, buy $10 or $50 each time. And if it never happens during that month, then wait until the very end of the month and then just smoke it all into Bitcoin. Apparently, some data has come out that shows the proper time to buy the dip. And apparently it's Sunday. Joseph Young writing it for Cointelegraph. Recent data shows that Sunday evening is the best time to buy Bitcoin, according to Capriol Digital Asset Manager Charles Edwards. As shown below, historically, BTC saw higher returns on Sunday evenings into the early Monday mornings. Bitcoin shows higher. Re- oh, sorry. Uh, quote from Edwards. Bored on Sunday at midnight. It just so happens to be the best time to buy Bitcoin, end quote. There are several reasons Bitcoin might perform better as the weekend comes to an end. First, the weekend typically records a lower volume, which raises the chances of high volatility. Second, traditional markets that facilitate Bitcoin trades like CME close during the weekends as they open it could cause a spike in volatility. During the weekend, as traditional markets close, trading volume at Bitcoin exchanges also tends to drop off. When there are fewer active traders in the market, it leaves the market vulnerable for volatile price action. As an example, on July 25th and 26th, the BTC-USDT pair on Binance recorded a daily volume of 40,000 BTC and 65,000 BTC, respectively. Then, On July the 27th, which was a Monday, the volume abruptly surged to 150 BTC. Coincidentally, the price of Bitcoin rose by 11%. Due to low Bitcoin trading volume during the weekend, BTC also tends to see sudden pullbacks. For instance, on Sunday, August the the 2nd, the price of BTC abruptly dropped by 6% overnight. This led to a volume spike, countering the above-mentioned data. The CME Bitcoin futures market and its closure during the weekends could also be impacting Bitcoin's strong performances on Mondays. Similar to the U.S. stock market, CME closes its markets over the weekend and on national holidays. Accredited and institutional investors that use the CME Bitcoin futures market have to wait until the market opens on Monday. Unlike traditional assets, BTC is traded through the weekend and holidays and every other damn day. It's 24-7, bro. Hence, when CME closes and opens on a Monday, there is usually a gap in price. The CME gap fill is a theory that is widely recognized within the cryptocurrency market. Data shows that the Bitcoin exchange market usually moves to fill the gap between CME and the rest of the market. Consequently, following a weekend, Bitcoin often sees a major price action. On August the 2nd, when BTC declined 6% within hours, more than 1 billion worth of futures contracts were wiped out. This coincidentally happened in the closing weekend of July, which is the CME futures contract close. The CME futures contract specification reads, quote, trading terminates at 4 p.m. London time on the last Friday of the contract month. If this is not both a London and U.S. business day, trading terminates on the prior London and the U.S. business day. 
end quote. In recent weeks, the open interest of the CME Bitcoin futures market has significantly increased, and this could possibly be a reflection of how CME is increasing its influence over the global Bitcoin market. It also, it's also possible that the data is purely coincidental and reduced trading volume on weekends is the primary reason for Sunday's offering discounted Bitcoin prices. So it could, this is either right or it's wrong is what they're saying in the very last sentence of this entire article. And I love it because the price could go up or the price could go down. Not trading advice, you know, that kind of shit, right? So, but still, in fact, this is kind of, uh, in, more, this is interesting to me enough for me to get on my uh, cash app and change my DCA day from Thursday at seven o'clock or whatever it is to Sunday uh, at 12 in the morning. Uh, it just, I mean, just to see. I mean, it's DCA anyway. It's not like it's going to burn me down if it's complete bullshit. But still, it's, like I said, it's interesting enough for me to actually give it a shot. So I'm going to do that. That is the end of the morning roundup. That's a long one. Okay, listen, I'm going to just completely ditch my daily train wreck for the day and go, oh, let's see, right on into the terrible joke corner. Dad says, oh, wait a minute. You know what? Hold that thought. Yeah, it's not going to be from Dad Says Jokes, okay? Uh, my my buddy uh, Coin Laughs, that's at Coin Laughs, C-O-I-N-L-A-F-F-S, made sure that I saw this joke that was written or tweeted out yesterday by a guy named Mr. Squiggle. His handle is at Horace1618. Uh, he actually wrote his own little joke, and I thought it was, well, I don't know if he wrote it, but he found one, he tweeted it, and it's, I love it. When my father dies, he wants his ashes pressed into a record. This was his vinyl request. Get it? Vinyl? Vinyl request. Yeah, buddy, that's some bad joke shit right there. Uh, there is nothing else to say, and we are well over the hour mark, so I'm going to wish all of you a wonderful weekend. Remember to buy Bitcoin, I guess, at 12 a.m. on Sunday or whatever it is that we were talking about a couple of minutes ago, and stack them sacks, and I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.